Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. Namaste and welcome. I'd like to begin this talk with a ancient and contemporary tale, and it, it's about a king and his wife that were entering into old age and they didn't have a child, so they were trying to attune to who's going to really take over the kingdom, who's going to rule, and they had a very wise counselor they were consulting with, and the wise counselor, who is also a very egalitarian-minded person, said, let's just open it to all, we'll just do interviews and see really who's the best person. And um, it's kind of like a contemporary nonprofit, you know, they're going to just invite everybody to the kingdom and do interviews. So what they did was they were going to have interviews in the royal chambers, but in order for it to be really fair, they wanted first for the, each person to be able to present themselves without, you know, an unfair advantage. So they opened up the, the, royal ch- the chambers and the royal closets and people had a choice of whatever they wanted to wear. And they had a banquet available so those that were waiting for their interview would be able to eat well. And they had um, music and entertainment and um, fancy soaps. And it was a, it was a very, very gracious kind of uh, invitation for all. So the king and the queen and their counselor waited in the royal chambers for people to start lining up for their interviews. And hours and hours went by and finally um, they went downstairs and found that everybody had left. They had eaten all the food and they had kind of left with some of the clothing, they would even taken the fancy soaps. (laughs) And um, they forgot to meet with the royal couple, in fact, they really forgot why they came. And so it is with many of us much of the time that we enter this life and we get kind of lost and waylaid and we forget what really brings us here and what really most matters to us. So this is our, our theme, our place of inquiry tonight, which is really uh, what are our deepest desires? And I'll kind of use the word aspiration also. What are the deepest desires? And how do we really live according to the compass of our heart and not forget? And in a way you can think of the whole evolution of consciousness that um, a key element is remembering what matters. And so it is that in most meditations that I lead and most gatherings and workshops and retreats, right at the beginning we have a a reflection, you know, what is it that brings you here? What do you want? What does the deepest part of your heart want? And it's interesting that often people will come up afterwards and say, you know, I reflect on my aspiration, but I really, I just don't know. It's like nothing really comes to me. And then some, some people find that it's kind of prepackaged, like they say, you know, okay, what I want is to be happier, I want to touch peace, or I want to be more loving, you know, but it's like kind of a, a mantra they tell themselves, it's not coming from a very deep and alive place. And then some people find when they 
get really quiet and they reflect really deeply, they touch something quite alive and juicy and, and beautiful that really inspires them, it actually carries them into what's next with a very available heart. So what makes the difference? And one of the basic principles on the path is that the more we wake up and touch presence, really have that, that direct experience of feeling really here and awake and tender and open-hearted, the more our intention is to touch presence. And then the more we have that intention, the more it energizes the way we pay attention. So it's, it's considered a virtuous spiral. And it's one that many people can relate to. When you touch something you cherish, then that becomes more in your consciousness. The um, Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi put it, I think, in the most elegant way. He said, the most important thing is to remember the most important thing. (laughs) And that's it. So we begin by really perhaps maybe the, the key inquiry, which is, how come we forget? I mean, what happens when we're forgetting? And mostly we're not aware of how much we forget. You know, the more we're in a reaction to stress, in other words, when we're in traffic, when we have a deadline, when in some way we're, we're late to an appointment or we're afraid of failure or that we're going to miss out on something, We're in that biochemistry of fight, flight, freeze and the very nature of it is we're cut off from those parts of our mind and our heart and our being that are in touch with our deep intention. We're just not living from that depth. We're living from really that drivenness of fear and wanting that come with fight, flight, freeze. And last week, in my last talk, um, we were talking about trauma, which is the kind of the full-blown fight-flight-freeze, we're really caught in fear. And in those moments, it's a trance. We're in a trance most of the time, but it's such a trance that there is absolutely no remembrance of, you know, may I awaken my heart, may I be free, may I touch the truth of who I am. It's like a complete small compartment of trance, and we act out of that when we get caught, we forget what really matters. We're really in fight-flight-freeze. And, and I'll speak more personally that I know for myself, and um, it's big swaths of time, that I'm really in busy mode and I'm speeding along and I'm, my main intention is to check things off the list to soothe my anxiety. And in those moments, I'm not thinking, well, what will serve deeper presence or more open heart? I'm just really wanting to check things off the list. You know, my mind has gotten narrow and my intention is coming from that place. And the truth is that when we're stressed, we're fueled by discomfort. And even though it seems like we're living in a lot of thoughts, what's actually driving us is feelings. And I've always found it really interesting, this is Chief Justice Douglas who described the decision-making at the Supreme Court level, and he said, 90% of the decision is made by feelings and the other 10% by thoughts to rationalize the feelings that we've just decided on. 
And so it is with our lives. If we really look at the the decision-making and how we move through a day, it's based on feelings. Then the question is, what domain of feelings? Are we operating off the fight-flight-freeze-fear and grasping? Or is it from what is considered the purity that's underneath, which is really our deepest aspiration uh, for love, for freedom, to wake up. There's many ways of describing it. So I would like to just invite a pause here and say, just to check out today. You know, just what was today like for you? And you might just close your eyes for a moment and um, before you scan you might say, well, just imagine that today was the last day of your life. And from that vantage point, did you move through it in a way that felt aligned? It's okay that you were doing small tasks, but did you navigate whatever the conversations or activity was with a quality of wholeheartedness, of authenticity, of presence? And if you're finding, no, it wasn't aligned, what was going on? Was there a sense of being on automatic and that maybe behind the automatic the kind of familiar fuel of anxiety like me trying to get things done or was there judging, was there uh, worrying, planning? Were you craving or wanting something and chasing after it? So as you, as you scan and sense, you know, what, what was really going on? What were you re- what level of wants and needs was driving you? Not to judge, because noticing is the beginning of shifting. You might think of it in a developmental way as where you're being driven by egoic intention, which is very familiar, very habitual. Or was there some sense from the depth of a kind of true heart intention or aspiration? And you can keep this reflection in mind if you'd like to open your eyes, you're free to, just to maybe further define when I, when I talk about egoic intention. It's, it comes down to really the intention to defend against threats or problems, to promote our self-interest, um, you know, to secure our attachments, to make ourselves feel better and not to feel worse. <laughs> That's kind of the egoic level. And I often describe it in terms of a, a spacesuit that we get born into a planet that's inherently challenging and we put on our, we develop this egoic spacesuit to help us navigate and we need it. And it helps us say, oh, danger there, go that way and hey, something you need and want that way, go after it. And, and we, it, we navigate with it. But if we're living 
constantly, if our life is wall-to-wall being uh, driven by egoic intent, then we get identified with the spacesuit and we forget the consciousness that's here. We forget the heart that's here. We forget a much more deep and vast and mysterious belonging that really can carry us home, just remembering it, wanting it, longing for it, which takes us to true aspiration. And true aspiration has a lot of expressions. So when I say, what is your true aspiration or true desires, it can take different shapes in different moments. Sometimes it can be, I I aspire to feel love, I want to love without holding back, you know. And sometimes it's for truth, I really want to know truth, just reality, what is reality? And sometimes our, our deepest aspiration might be a sense of, you know, that peace that surpasses all understanding, you know, profound peace. Um, it has all these different expressions. Sometimes it's for creativity, to live in a really authentic, creative way. Each of these has a, this is a common denominator, and this is, I'm going to kind of give a kind of definition for true aspiration or true desire, which is our true aspiration is always in some way to manifest fully who we are. It's what's already and, already and always here that we want to manifest, unfold it, live it. It's not for something outside ourselves or down the road. In fact, the only place that you can actually experience a true desire is in the moment. It can only be felt right here. So some of the criteria, the signs of true desire, when you've arrived at your true desire or true aspiration, it's about really manifesting your potential in some way, it's about a quality of presence that can experience it in a living way. And you'll feel a kind of sincerity. I can say for myself that when I am prayerful and really in touch with what matters, it feels totally sincere. Like there's just, there's no been there, done that, there's no edge, there's, there's no, nothing but just that purity of, yeah, this really matters. It has a... Um, kind of an innocence to it. And uh, for me, when I'm really kind of in that, and there's, there's a sense that um, something's calling me home, that, that I just want to relax back and rest in the awareness and love that's here, because that's home, I want to come home. So I'm just giving you some of the flavors. Now, the Buddha taught that our entire life arises from the tip of intention. So that whatever your intention is right now, whether it's the surface waves of wanting, craving, fear, or it's that deep, tender place of longing, whatever your intention is, that then creates what happens out of it. It's kind of like your karma unfolds from your intention. And so that means in a conversation, if your intention is in some way to prove yourself or to dominate or to get approval or whatever, the conversation will unfold in a certain way based on that, in a kind of egoic level. And if you're in a conversation and your intention is to take the risk to really not prepare in any way but be totally available to 
connect and to understand, you're going to have a whole different experience. You know, the poet Mark Nepo calls that exquisite risk when our intention is to absolutely come unarmored into the moment so that we're available, to be available to be changed, available to have real connection. What's our intention? So there's two different pathways we'll explore um, as we continue in this uh, reflection to shift from the egoic level, which we all have some of and we need some of, we just want it not to be dominating our attention all the time, but to shift from the egoic to that level of that purity of our true desires. And one of the approaches is, uh, for, for shifting it is by deeply reflecting, okay, what's my spiritual aspiration right now? And that's when we're a little quieter. You'll find if you're busy and stressed out and you try to do it, you're just going to have a lot of thoughts. So put that aside. The second way is when you are stressed out and you're stuck and you're really caught in reactivity, to be able to pause and say, okay, so what's my intention? What's driving right now? Because if you are in the middle of a conflict and you have a way to take a time out, you say, okay, what's my intention right now? All right, my intention is to get back at somebody, okay? Or, you know, prove I'm right. That's a big one we have. If you get that and then you pause some more, and you just are with that, with kindness, not judging it, then a a deeper level of who you are and your intentionality will start unfolding itself. Well, what do I really want? Well, what do I really want under that? Until you get back home in what we might call true aspiration. So those are the two pathways. And I'm going to give you um, a few different examples of the latter because I feel like it's so powerful to begin to pause and bring mindfulness to intention when we're caught in egoic patterns. So we're going to look at two places where we get hooked in those patternings where we can use intention to come back home. And one of them will be when we're promoting ourselves in some way, the other will be conflict, because they happen all the time every day, okay? And uh, for promoting ourselves, we know that uh, one of the, you know, it comes on all levels, self-promotion. It could be from the level, the material level, that we're trying to acquire more money and more possessions or more approval or more power, just status in the world. You know, it's our, our... narrative, our, the, our story that we want others to know about ourselves, we're trying to in some way get that across, that's self-promotion. My husband, uh, Jonathan Faust, has a, a bio that he has out there, and I thought I'd share a little bit about his bio. One thing on it is certified pesticide applicator, expired. <laughs> And, and the way his bio ends is uh, Jonathan Faust, M.A., comma, C.S.A. And for years it was like that. And then a few years ago somebody said, okay, I know what M.A. is. Well, what's C.S.A. stand for? It stands for Cub Scouts of America. <laughs> 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 so 
So that was his self-promotion. <laughs> a big way that we try to promote is to win, to be the best in some way, um, one-upmanship. There's a, a story about some stores on a main street in a very small town that were like side by side by side, no space between them. And they all sold the same kind of merchandise, so it was very, very competitive. And one day, one end, the owner put up a sign saying, rock bottom prices. And that prompted the competitive guy on the other end to say, lowest prices in town. So the guy in the middle is going, okay, what am I, how am I going to deal with these aggressive maneuvers? Then he gets a really bright idea, and he put his sign up, and it said, main entrance, <laughs> enter here. <laughs> So we get very slick in the ways we try to pull it up. One of the biggest domains for self-promotion is promoting our own, sen- you know, our own comfort, our sense of pleasure, ha- you know, kind of grasping after more satisfaction and more pleasure. And instead of the, the deeper, longer-term gratification that comes from our deeper desires. Again, a story to illustrate is of a woman who uh, goes to her priest one day and says, you know, Father, I have a problem. I have two female parrots, but they only know how to say one thing. And so the priest inquires, well, what is that? And she says, well, and she's embarrassed, but she said, well, they say, hi, we're prostitutes. Do you want to have some fun? And so the priest is really upset. He goes, that's obscene. And then he gets a brilliant idea. He goes, you know, I might have a solution. I have two parrots myself, and I've taught them to pray and read the Bible. And my sense is that my parrots can teach your parrots to praise and worship and stop saying uh, that phrase in no time. So the woman's really enthusiastic. She goes, great, I'll bring them over. So the next day she, she goes to the priest's house with her parrots and he ushers her, her in and she sees his two male parrots and sure enough, they're holding the rosary beads and they're praying. <laughs> so she's impressed and she places her parrots with them. And after a few minutes, the female parrots cry out in unison, Hi, we're prostitutes, you want to have some fun? And uh, there's a stunned silence, and finally one male parrot looks over at the other and says, Put the beads away, Francis, our prayers have been answered. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to, again, say that um, we need the egoic spacesuit self, or we wouldn't reproduce and wouldn't do all sorts of things in this life. And um, and it, so it's not like bad and good. And yet, um, when we get identified with that, when our life is we're constantly pursuing pleasures and constantly trying to get another's approval and constantly trying to prove we're right, um, we forget who we are. And so we're, we're not in touch with the deepest longing, which is really to manifest this, this heart and this awareness that expresses our true nature. So there's an understanding that the more stress we're in or the more we're driven, the more forgetting there is. Um, this is Oprah Winfrey says, before you agree to do anything that might add even a smallest amount of stress to your life, Ask yourself, what is my truest intention? Give yourself time to let a yes resound within you. When it's right, I guarantee that your entire body will feel it. So when we get stuck, when we're grasping and chasing after, 
it adds stress. What is it I really long for? Now, a hundred years earlier, about, approximately, Dage Lawrence put it this way. He said, men are not free doing just what they want. Men are only free when they're doing what the deepest self wants. And there's getting down to the deepest self. It takes some digging. Okay? So when we're stuck, how do we get down to that deepest self, our deepest longing? I'd like to give you an example of uh, one woman I worked with some years back. Uh, she was both, she both came to classes and also we did some sessions together. She had uh, left government work and was uh, CEO of a for-profit uh, business that was involved with sustainable development. She was a sought-after consultant. Now, this is a woman that cared deeply about the world, about the environment and about economic justice. And she was a super achiever. She graduated from Yale. She was very politically networked, uh, very leveraged when I met her, and, and, and a competitive person. And she came to therapy, and this is interesting, she came because she was getting in touch with just how driven she was to be a player, to be visible and influential and powerful, and how it was creating in her a sense of shame and isolation the degree of her drivenness. How many moments her focus was on uh, numero uno, how is this going to leverage me personally? She felt like she was leaving home and, and I think meditation got her more in touch with that. So we met. And we, we took a, a recent instance that she had in her mind where she had, had, been in, had a news interview about the field she was in and she had focused a lot on her own accomplishments and kind of deflected attention from others that had made some major contributions. So I asked her, so what was your intention in doing that? She said, I wanted to look good. And then um, I said, well, what will that do for you? Because this is the process. You keep saying, well, what will that do for you? Well, what what will that do for you? And I said, well, so if you look good, then what? Will I get more admiration, more attention? Okay, so what does it do for you to have more admiration, more attention? Well, then I know I'm worthy. Ah, so what does that do for you if you know you're worthy? Well, then I trust that I'm lovable. Then I trust I belong. Bingo, that's your aspiration. You want to really trust that loving and lovability, trust belonging. And then I asked her, so if you trusted it, like if you're really feeling loving and loved and belonging, what's that like? And it took her and she said, okay, she kind of had to go into that and she said, well, it's like, I'm going to read what she wrote, on this field of light, I'm alive, I'm tender, I'm, there's no boundary and everything in the world's part of me. I said, okay, so just get familiar with that, just feel it, feel it right now in your body, your heart. And then her practice was, when you leave home, in other words, when you find yourself caught in that more ego level intention, you know, of kind of promoting herself, forgive it, because it's absolutely conditioned. This is not like we choose to be self-aggrandizing, it's just conditioned, forgive it and then say, well, what am I wanting? Oh, what am I really wanting? Well, what will that do for me? What will that do for me? 
I call this tracing back desire. Because if you trace it back and back, it goes from those surface ego-level waves that drive us most of the time to a deep, vast place in us that's very tender, that's just yearning to come home to the truth of who we are. Now, she did it many, many rounds. And just to an update, she's still totally engaged, totally influential, you know, she's really, she goes at it, she's a driven person, way more confident, just some basically more confident and more collaborative, which is really the way the world needs to go. And her description was, she says, I'm feeling a lot more joy, (laughs) which is the truth because it's never joyful to promote ourselves. It gives a temporary zing and it's very biochemical, it's a real zing and we get very attached to it. But it's not joy. Joy is in homecoming. So that's just one example of tracing back, you know, and there's, there's a, a beautiful uh, kind of a understanding that to be kind or to be really who we are, we need to swerve frequently from our path. That we might be on a track, an egoic track, but to really be aligned, we're just going to have to keep on being flexible to really be who we are. A, a brief example that I loved, again from, I got this from the poet Mark Nepo, who I highly recommend his poems and his writings. He has a story in one of his books about a cyclist who worked and prepared for months for a cycling race that was going to take place out in the country. And he got into great shape, and there the race begins, and within very little time he's way, way ahead of everybody. He's in the lead quite a bit. And then all of a sudden, a great blue heron sweeps down, wings spread, sweeps right over his handlebars. And he's stunned. And he stops his bike, and he's just straddling. Because in some way, this heron opened him up to something he had been chasing his whole life. There was a moment that he opened to. And everybody else is catching up, and he has stopped, and he's confused. And and we'll go to the end of the story, years later, people would say to him, well, now and then, well, what cost you that race? And his response would be, I didn't lose the race, I left it. In that moment, that deep intention to be available, that, that, that sense of exquisite risk, oh, whatever the goal I thought it was, Do we have this flexibility to have something deeper carry us, open us, stop us, make us available? He was available to be changed. That's being aligned with deep intention. Thus far I've been talking really on an individual level, but we can also look at parallel the intentions that drive a society, and a society that's based on egoic level intentions is going to be, in terms of we're talking about self-promotion and feeding ourselves, is going to be an ever, there'll be ever-increasing consumption, addiction. Many of you might have seen on the front pages of the front page of the Times today that large 
sections of the Great Barrier Reef are dead before schedule even, that before they thought they're dead. This is horrific. I mean, this is a major horrific piece of news that reflects, you know, the, the devastation of, of global warming, which has to do with greenhouse gases that are because we're over-consuming fuel. The intention that runs a society has great effect. And when that intention shifts, you know, if we shift from gross national product to gross national happiness, to really living from that intention that humans be there to help each other, enjoy each other, that we live more simply and nourish this life web, that's the shift to true aspiration. So we've talked so far about how do we drop down when it's self-promotion. I want to... the second domain, which is again one that's pervasive, is how do we shift our intention when we're in conflict with another person? And again, this is, this is a huge one because we spend a lot of our time trying to control each other in some way. And when another doesn't cooperate, we get defensive, we get aggressive, we try to dominate, we try to manipulate. Illustration, an old man in Phoenix calls his son in New York and says, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. Forty-five years of misery is enough. And he screamed, the son screams out, Pop, what are you talking about? And he said, and the father interrupts, We can't stand the sight of each other anymore. We're sick and tired of each other, and I'm sick of talking about this. And he says, Go call your sister in Chicago and tell her. Hangs up. Okay, so brother calls his sister, and she's, you know, she's, she's freaked out too. So she calls her father and says, you are not getting divorced, don't do a single thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother back, we'll both be there tomorrow, until then, don't do anything. Do you hear me? And she hangs up. Okay. Old man hangs up his phone, he turns to his wife. Okay, he says, they're coming for Thanksgiving and they're paying their own way. <laughs> Every one of us knows, and this is the particular error we get most caught in, is blame, aversive judgment and blame. And we know what it's like. So that's the egoic level that we're, we're most familiar with, uh, the criticizing. And, um, you know, we do it, the intention behind it, we're trying to control things. We're trying to find some ground. We're trying to be right. We make others wrong and we try to be right. So it's a powerful opportunity if we really want to wake up our consciousness. It's a powerful opportunity to explore, okay, what's the intention here? And can we, in that presence, come to a deeper, wiser, more liberating intent? An example of how this works in this domain, uh, one of the... uh, men that actually attended this class some years ago talked to me about how he and his partner were locked into this kind of growing, uh, going, growing kind of tension. And background, briefly, he left a very secure job, well-paying, decided he wanted to build his business as an executive coach. He's really excited about it and he's doing all these extra trainings, he's taking trainings in communications and diversity and focusing and so on. 
His wife has meanwhile become super anxious about income and security and, get, and so she starts getting more and more critical about how he's prioritizing his time, how he's running things, how, he's, you know, how small his client base is, etc. Almost every conversation just ends up descending into that same argument with her being critical and him defending and getting very distant. And in general, she, her whole, she basically was uh, punishing. She was, she was angry and upset and punishing towards him. And um, he described one day coming back from a day-long training and she's questioning him, you know, on how that training was really going to bring him clients and, and getting angry and he gets very angry and he cuts her off. And he says, you know, why do I have to justify every step of the way? Then he told her, you know, I feel like I'm the enemy and you're just at me all the time. And, I'm, you know, he's told her, you're sick of it. So... That was the one we talked about. That's the one we explored together. And I said, okay, so you're angry and what's the intention? It's to push her away, to defend myself, you know, from her attacks. And, I, and then I said, so what's, what's the, you know, if you had to really sense what are you defending yourself from? And he said, it's from, from the hurt. He said, you know, if I don't push her away, then I have to feel hurt that she doesn't trust me. So defending against that hurt. And I'm defending against the sense that she doesn't care that I'm pursuing something I'm excited about. So we paused there, and that was a place for self-compassion, that feeling of hurt. If you want to get down to deeper intentions, you have to take care of the place that's feeling, you know, upset. So he brought some real care there. And after he had some time, he said, so what is the deepest intention? What, if you're back with her, what is it you're really wanting to happen with her? And he said, well, I want us to be close again, like we used to be. I want us to care about what the other person cares about and to understand each other. And, and he said, I want to be allies, not enemies. So I had him go through an inner process, you know, of imagining speaking with her, and I said, I want you to, you know, get in touch with the part of you that has that deep intention. It's his more evolved self. I sometimes refer to it as his future self in the sense that that's, that's the, his being, if once he's really awake and mature, he'd have that intention. And I said, and through the eyes of your more evolved self, what's going on for her? What's her intention? Well, she's afraid, you know, or drawing, you know, on our savings now and there's very little buffer. And she's hurt that I don't care about her fears. So I said, well, from the perspective of future self, what does she really need? And she said, she needs me to show her that I care about her fears, that I'm willing to listen. So this was the practice he had, which was every time they'd lock into to conflict, he would try to call on, you know, when he felt hurt by her reaction, he'd internally he'd breathe and offer himself care, but then he'd call on his future self, that, that, I, that intention that they be allies, that they connect, that they have understanding. And little by little it gave him more choice on how to respond when she lashed out. He was able to say things like, okay, what's behind that? I, I feel like you're afraid right now. Is that what it is? Like, check out things. 
and start listening when she said she was that you know how much their financial situation was shaking them up and so they started being allies and looking at how could they how could they create a way of doing it together so that she would feel more secure and he then was able to express his vulnerability that he needed her to trust him some and to care about what he cared about so it opened up communications and I found this, that often in conflict usually it's one person that that has to lead the way a little bit in making it safe enough for the other person but if one person can ask themselves what really matters here? what do I really care about? they're going to be then coming from their more evolved self and have more choice in how to meet the needs that felt like they weren't meetable how to work with both people's needs there's new choices I think of this um, often as when we're in conflict our mind makes the other person the enemy and as long as we're, you know, the intention is to in some way deal with the enemy as an enemy I want to push them away or beat them or prove I'm right we're going to stay in the same egoic loop but if we can instead sense our intention to be allies that we want to connect there's all sorts of creativity that's possible and I love, uh, you know, there's a very, very well-known quote from Lincoln I do not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends that is the shift from egoic to true aspiration when we can hold it in that bigger way the poet Edwin Markham put it this way he drew a circle that shut me out heretic, rebel, a thing to flout but love and I had the wit to win we drew a circle that took him in okay talking again on the individual level but the exact parallel with our larger society if the intention is to others are the enemy and the intention is to defend against the enemy build walls against the enemy attack an enemy then it's going to keep us in the same cycles of violence if the intention is to be allies, to collaborate, to be friends then we get to move towards peace so let's pause here let's, let's take a moment and invite you to check in to where there might be a relationship that could use your deepened uh, attention and presence just do a little bit of practice right here on the spot so see if you can bring to mind some situation where uh, you, you get it conflictual you know, reactive with somebody family, friend, colleague this isn't, uh, not a major, major hostility but where you, where you get into a pattern where you know that you're reacting from your ego and they're reacting from theirs
And you might imagine one situation that is representative. Imagine a situation where you're kind of stuck in, in, your, in the defenses or the aggression or whatever it is. And you might ask yourself, what's my intent right here? Am I trying to protect myself from hurt? Am I trying to be right to improve my position, to get something I want? Am I trying to get back? And whatever you notice on the egoic want level, just to regard it with compassion. You might think of it like you're the ocean, it's just waves, it's a pattern of waves that's developed. Just compassionate towards it. In fact, the more you're kind towards that ego level, the more you'll be able to drop into something deeper. So you might sense what happens if you really are kind towards whatever's going on inside you. And then investigate more deeply. What's my deepest intention? What really matters? If you and this person were at the end of your lives, what would you wish? See if you can let the, your deepest aspiration fill you. So you look through the eyes of your more awake self at the other person, maybe sensing a bit where they're vulnerable, what they need. And you might notice if there's more of a sense of possibilities, choices that open up when you're remembering your deepest intention. knowing that this, this takes repeating many rounds. Where attention goes, energy flows. So you might imagine over and over that you could be pausing with this person or with children, parents, partner, friends, noticing what the intention is in the moment with kindness, but then saying, well, what really matters here? And we know we don't want to go through the decades sleepwalking, chasing after comforts and pleasures, caught in judging and blame. We don't want to miss the fullness of love and aliveness and mystery that's who we are. Mary Oliver, in one of her poems, describes kneeling in prayer in a field, contemplating with wonder a grasshopper who's gazing around with enormous, complicated eyes. 
And she writes, Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? As a final closing reflection, just continuing with your eyes closed, you might imagine if you knew you, you really knew you had a year to live. And what's your sense of how you'd live that year? How would the compass of your heart guide you? What would matter? You might imagine if you had a month in the same way. What's the sense of your true aspiration, your desire? How would that guide you? You might imagine if you had a day, what matters? What really matters? What do you want to remember? How do you want to live your moments? And then the last few minutes, What is it that you want to really remember, open to, touch, live from, die into? What matters? May all beings open to the purest longing of their hearts. May the compass of the heart guide us to ever-increasing kindness and creativity, aliveness. May we be carried into boundless belonging, into vast love and awareness. Namaste and thank you. For more talks and meditations, and to learn about my schedule or join my email list, please visit tarabrock.com. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.